Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Would you open your Bibles or follow along on the screen as we read our sermon text today, which is Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 16 is what we'll read. Philippians 3, verses 7 through 16. This is God's word, and it is eternally true. The Apostle Paul writes, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we've been working our way through Philippians and spent some time in recent weeks in this chapter. And what we've been saying about it is that it Paul is giving us here the spiritual dynamics of his conversion experience. And you could sum that up, or he sums it up in this, that it's, he's willing to have set everything else aside, every other hope of his aside, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. Um, this knowledge that Paul seeks to know and obtain and have and grow in of the Lord Jesus Christ is not like an intellectual uh, knowledge merely. It's not just knowing facts about Jesus or, or even agreeing that those facts are true. It's much more than that. It is entering into a personal relationship of trust and dependence and love with a person, the person Jesus Christ, the Lord. That's what Paul came into possession of on the road to Damascus. The circumstances of Paul's conversion are really unique, unique to Paul. Every conversion experience is unique in its circumstances. Paul's, though, more unique than anybody's I've ever heard of. I don't think anybody has come face-to-face with the Lord Jesus in his glory, been blinded by the light, spent three days in the dark of that blindness, and then had somebody sent by God to lay hands of healing on him and have something like literal scales fall off his eyes. Those are the circumstances of Paul's conversion. They're very unique. We're not to test ourselves against those things because none of us could ever hope to have that kind of experience. But the spiritual dynamics, the things going on under the hood, are what Paul gives here. 
And those are universal things. Paul's giving those to us as a kind of paradigm, as a model for us to test our own experience of Christ against and to see if we're in the faith. And Paul lays out two basic tests of what it is to believe in savingly in Jesus Christ. And that's, first of all, having Jesus for you. What it means, and do you know what it means, and do you have the knowledge of Jesus for you? We looked at that. We've also looked at this second test, which is what it means to know Christ in you, for you and in you. We've talked about those the last couple of weeks. Let's just review what we've said just for a moment. To know Christ for you is to know him as your righteousness. Paul talks about that in verse 9. He says, I want to be found in Jesus, in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. That is the core truth, principle, at the heart of the gospel. The only basis in which we can help to come to God and be presented before him and come into his presence and enjoy him is in Jesus Christ, in him. Not in ourselves, not in our own obedience. That is hopeless. Paul gave all that up in exchange for knowing the righteousness which comes to him from God on the basis of faith. We confess this to be true about every fourth week in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 60. I wonder if you've ever thought how bodacious this claim is and pondered it. Ask the men to put it up. The question is, how are you righteous before God? That's the question. And here's the catechism answer, which is not scripture. It's a summary of scriptural truth, but it's very sound and true based on scripture. And here's what the answer is given. How am I righteous before God? Only by faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience, my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments, I've never kept any of them, and I'm still inclined to all evil. That's what my conscience says. God's law instructs it, and it's right. Even though that's true, and that's what my conscience tells me, yet God, God, without any merit or working or deserving of my own, without any of that, out of mere grace, imputes to me. That's a very important word, imputes. We haven't talked about it yet in this sermon series. Let me just tell you briefly what it means. I wish I had a dollar bill in my pocket, but I don't carry cash anymore. But imputation is what we do with dollar bills. They don't have any inherent value in themselves. They're just a bit of fancy paper, almost of no value. The value that they represent is a value that we have agreed together as a society to impute to it. We reckon it to have a certain value, and it represents that value in our, in our exchanges with one another. So it is with Jesus, with saving faith. His righteousness is imputed to you. You don't have it. It's not inherent to you. But all that he is and all that he has achieved is imputed, value imputed to you. By faith. Listen to this. Here's what's imputed. The perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. And here's the degree to which it's imputed. He grants these to me, the Lord does, as if I had never committed or had any sin. And as if I myself had accomplished 
all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. That's bodacious. But that's God's offer of love in the gospel. And all we have to do is to receive it in full is to reach out in faith. The necessity of faith, though, is what brings in this second test question. Do we know Christ in us? It's one thing to know him for us, but we can't really know him for us in faith without knowing him in us. We need the power, what Paul calls in verse 10, the power of Christ's resurrection. This is the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. We saw last week that the Holy Spirit is connected to the power of the resurrection in Scripture and Paul's thinking very strongly in these ways. Paul in Romans says that the Spirit is the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. That's him. And that Jesus was raised and ascended to the Father in order to pour out his Spirit on his people, on his church. And so he is the power of Christ's resurrection. The new life, the power in Christ, descended, come to us, and working in us in power. We need that in order to know and believe in Jesus in a saving way. One of the first works that the Holy Spirit does in coming into our hearts and our lives is that he grants us the ability to reach out in faith and belief and accept the gift of Jesus for us. The Bible tells us that we are completely unable to do that work in ourselves. It describes this, well, it says faith is not a work. It is a gift of God, not something you can perform. It's something God has to give to you in order to to lay hold of Christ. The, The Bible describes us in our natural state as dead in trespasses and sins, dead. Dead men don't reach out and grab things. They're dead. It speaks of us as being suppressors of the truth in Romans 1, as being foolish in our understandings and darkened in our hearts, fumbling around in spiritual darkness, groping for things. That's how we're described in our natural spiritual state, as dead men. But when the Spirit of God comes into our lives, he makes us to live and to reach and to yearn for God and to know him in a saving way. We believe, we begin to believe. That is the first fruits of the Holy Spirit when he comes into a life. He causes us to live and to lay hold of by faith the work of Jesus Christ. That's the very beginning of the Spirit's power, but it's only only the beginning. God in the Spirit grants us the blessings of, of Christ for us as he comes to dwell in us sovereignly by his Spirit. And there is a wonderful account of this happening in our church service last week. There's a young boy in our church that came to know the Lord in our service, not during the preaching. I'd like to think so, but no. During the singing. And I don't think necessarily because he was singing. He was thinking about somebody else who was suffering, one of our brethren who's suffering. And here's what he wrote to that brother in the church service. He said, While we were singing this morning, I was thinking about you. Before this, I didn't really know how to believe in God. But when I was thinking about you, God just made me know him. That's the power of the Holy Spirit, bringing 
the life that is in Jesus to bear in our hearts and helping us to know what we could not know and believe what we could not believe and reach out and receive what we could not reach out and grasp. That's Paul's testimony. That's my testimony. That's now this young boy's testimony. Is it your testimony that God has opened your eyes and given you faith to receive the riches and the blessings of Jesus Christ and all that he provides? But if you have that, it's only the beginning. It's the entry point into a life of the Spirit. There's more to the power of the resurrection than just initial saving faith. There's a life of faith that we're called to. A life of power. A life of growth. A life of transformation. A life of progress. If you've come to know Christ in you, and therefore for you by faith, that way is opened. A way to a new life that has new ambitions, a new power to achieve those aims and ambitions, and a, and a new supernatural willingness to endure whatever hardships and obstacles come in your way that you meet with in the way. And there are hardships and obstacles. But this is the life of the Spirit, the life of a, of a convert, the life of somebody who has Christ dwelling in them by faith through the power of of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Paul describes for us here in, this, in these next verses, what it looks like, how he goes about living this life, what his perspective is, what his viewpoint is, what his ambitions are, how he approaches those ambitions, and in what power and what spirit and what attitude of mind he goes about making progress forward. I want us to know four, or notice four things today from these verses about what Paul says his experience of the life of the Spirit is like. That's in verses 11 to 16. That's our focus. It's not necessarily in the order that Paul presents them here. This is one of the challenges of this passage is that it's not like linear. It's like holistic, organic. And Paul has, and so I'm just going to try to lay it out for you as it makes sense to me, as it's helped me understand what Paul is saying in these verses. So here's the first thing. The new life opened up in the Spirit brings the promise of a glorious future. The Holy Spirit coming into us opens up newness of life. And that has a goal or a focal point that it is aimed at. It has a fulfillment. And Paul calls it a prize in verse 14, the prize. And that prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. This prize is what Paul keeps his eye on. It's what he aims at. It's what he drives toward in his life. This is the hope of glory in heaven. This is the prize. The hope of eternal glory with Jesus in his eternal kingdom. Jesus sits and reigns in that kingdom by merit. He deserves it. He has won it. By his obedience, God has granted him the kingdom and has established him as the high king over all things in authority. But you and I, and the scriptures refer to it as his inheritance for his obedience. You and I receive the same inheritance with him. The kingdom is ours too, because it's ours in Jesus Christ. It's ours not by merit, but by grace. We don't have any other grounds for inheriting the kingdom of heaven apart from the grace of what Jesus has done for us. But the Spirit comes 
and he grants us all that belongs to Jesus. He comes and he brings it and he starts to work the newness of life into us. And one of the things that scripture says that he is, is the pledge of our inheritance. So we have an inheritance with Jesus and his eternal kingdom. And we have the pledge or the down payment of it in our hearts by the spirit. He is that pledge himself. The, the promise, the seal that we belong there. And that's where we're headed. And Paul has that pledge in himself. And he keeps his eye on that prize, that end goal of being with Christ in glory. Do you have your eye on that prize? Is that your focus and the aim of your life? What does Paul exactly mean, though, by the prize? What is the prize? It's not heaven like we normally think of it. When we normally think about heaven, we normally think about dying and our souls going to be with the Lord. That is a prize. Paul says it and acknowledges it in chapter 1. He says that is very much better to die, be out of the, absent from the body, and with the Lord. That's very much better. That's gain. He's like, I'm hard-pressed. I'd kind of like to be there right now. But that's not the gain or the prize, ultimately, that he has his eye on. He says in verse 11 what his goal is. The, the prize that he's trying to attain, he says, is the resurrection of the dead. That's something beyond that state where our souls are with the Lord awaiting the resurrection of our bodies. He's looking for the ultimate fulfillment, which is when his body is raised and his soul is reunited and rejoined to his body and the two of them fully and finally are made perfect. Perfect. Never to die again. Never to sin again. Never to suffer again. Perfect. That's Paul's ultimate prize. He wants that prize. That's what happens when Jesus returns in power, the glory of his holy angels and the trumpet sounds and the voice of the archangel calls forth the dead. And Jesus brings with him those who have, the souls of those who have died, gone to be with the Lord, and he joins them to their bodies, and they dwell with him on the new earth. Not in a disembodied state. Not like those pictures of the clouds and the cherubs. Here, without a curse, in a completely new world that you can't even begin to imagine. That's what Paul has his eye on. And he calls it a day of perfection. A day of perfection. Look at verse 12. He says, after he's just got done telling us that he's striving towards the, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, he says, not that I've already obtained that or have already become perfect. For the righteous in Christ, the day of Christ's appearing is a day of their final and full perfection. Not just physical perfection, but the complete glorification of their whole person, their whole moral self, and with their body, they are perfected. And that perfection is defined in this way, that they are like Jesus in holiness and in an incorruptible life. The best ver verses I know to, to see this come from something we read already in our scripture lesson, 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3. 
This is the Apostle John writing, and he says, Beloved, now, right now, we are children of God. Right now. And it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's, that's the hope that Paul has his eyes set on. The hope of, of being fully like Jesus. Being what he was, Paul was made to be the moment he lays eyes on the resurrected, returned Jesus Christ in glory. Now listen, this has a result, an effect on our lives here and now. The Apostle John goes on to say this in the next verse. Look at it. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself. Purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. Everyone who has that hope does this one thing. They purify themselves in anticipation of that day just as they know Jesus to be pure. They don't know fully what he is, what he looks like, how he's going to be. We don't know what fully we're going to be when we see him. But we know he's pure. And we purify ourselves in keeping with his purity now, right now. That's the second thing I want us to see about this passage. The life of the Spirit results in a life of vigorous effort toward that promised perfection. That's the the life of the Spirit, the life we're to be living now. It's a vigorous effort towards our promised perfection. Paul's new ambition is to work vigorously toward the promised prize of glory. He is not just waiting around for heaven to come, twiddling his thumbs. He is is going to work in the direction of God's promises. Up until now, everything just about that we've said about this passage over the last weeks has focused on the sovereign work of God. God in Jesus doing what we could not do, obeying the law, satisfying its penalty and its curse. Jesus in the Holy Spirit sending his new resurrected life into us calling us to life and allowing us to have the faith to lay hold of what he has done and have it applied and imputed to us. All, that's what we call justification. Justification. And justification is a monergistic work. That is, it's not in cooperation with us and God. It's all God doing the work. It's monergistic. Glorification, which is what we've just been talking about, the hope, that the prize that Paul has his eyes fixed on, is also a monergistic work. Something that God is going to bring about in power in a moment at, at when the trumpet sounds and the dead are raised. In between there is what we call the Christian life. <laughs> Those two poles. Day to day, you know, all the stuff you got to do, all the troubles you got to bear, all the temptations you face, the day to day Christian life. And that's the realm of sanctification. Sanctification, which is a synergistic work. There is, it's incumbent upon you to put in effort. But you're not alone in it, as we'll see at the end. 
You're not alone in this, and that's what gives you hope and power as a believer. John writes, as we read, that everyone who has the hope of glory fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as Jesus is pure. When we see the Lord, we will be like him in holiness. But in the meantime, we have sanctification. And we are said and told and instructed in the book of Hebrews to pursue that because without it, no one will see the Lord. Isn't that interesting? So there's a perfection that's going to come when we see the Lord, but you're not going to see that day of perfection if you're not pursuing it now. It's monergistic and yet synergistically, together with the help of the Spirit in us day by day, we are to be pursuing that future glory. This is not an area of life in which you let go and let God. We are to pursue in this life the holiness promised us in heaven. Like runners in a race, like soldiers taking uh, uh, conquering a battlefield or conquering an enemy. Like, like Paul uses the analogy here of a runner. And it's like what Peter says. He lays aside every encumbrance of... No, it's not Peter. It's whoever wrote Hebrews. You probably have your own theory about that. The author of Hebrews says that we are to pursue this conquest of heaven, this future glory that's promised us, laying aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us and run with endurance the race that's set before us. That's the image that Paul uses in this passage. Look at it, verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained it, this hope of the resurrection, future glory, or have already become perfect. I've not, I'm not there, that's not happened to me. But I press on. And he goes on in verse 13 to say, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize, just like a runner in the games. I'm looking at the finish line, and I'm running headstrong, headlong towards it, toward the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's like a runner. He keeps his eye on the prize. He doesn't get distracted either by past failures, which if he thought too much about, he'd get discouraged, or by past successes, which if he, if he thought too much about, he'd get self-satisfied and complacent. No, he's, he's about the future. He's about onward and upward. That's his motto, onward and up, upward. We were talking about this passage and what to say about it in our pastor's meeting this week, and one of the pastors said is, well, one thing that's clear is Paul is all in. That's just, that just comes all out in this passage. He is all in on Jesus and on the pursuit of everything that is promised him in Christ. Is that your approach to the Christian life? Are you all in? Are you believing and pursuing that with all your might? We sing a hymn. We don't haven't sung it lately, but we've sung it many times over the years. It's a hymn by Isaac Watts called, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? It's a good diagnostic question to ask. Am I, am I a soldier of the cross? And the second verse is wonderful as a diagnostic. It says, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? 
Must I? Is that, is that going to be my approach to getting to heaven? Must I be carried on flowery beds of ease, on, you know, binge-watching Netflix and driving a post-2021 car and having it all, you know? Is that the way God is destined for me to go to glory? While, and the, the author goes on, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize? And sailed through bloody seas. Paul is not a triumphalist. You know what a triumphalist is? It's somebody who's just so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. (laughs) That That they just like seem to not even notice that life is hard and that there's real pain and real sin and it's awful and it affects us deeply and it tears up and destroys lives and families and communities. Paul's not a ditz brain. And I'm so glad to know it and have proof of it in this passage when he's talking about such tremendous, cosmic, glorious things. This is the third thing I want us to see. Sanctification takes effort, and it's hard. There's so much difficulty and pain to endure, so many temptations, struggles, and so much opposition to overcome. Paul knows them well, and he accepts it in faith. Look at this. Number three, the life of the Spirit is a life of hardship and trial embraced in faith. We see that here. I was talking to somebody this week who is going through a really difficult thing. And I asked them, do you trust God? Do you trust God? And they sort of hesitatingly said, well, yes, I I do. But I don't just think that that means that this situation is going to work out great. And I think they felt a little defensive, like I was implying that, that it's gonna if they just have enough faith for it. And that's not what I meant. And I think that this person lives under the fear that Christians around them think that everything's got to end like a fairy tale. That that's what's promised us. A life of, of, with a fairy tale. It might have might have difficulties, but every situation, if you just have enough faith for it, is going to work out. It's going to be great. It's just going to be great. Paul doesn't live in that world. He lives in the real world with you and me. We're called to live there too. My own mother faced this kind of oppression. There's a lot of Christians who are triumphalists and they're kind of ditz brains about the world and they just sort of act as if Jesus solves everything and then there's no, like, there's no work to do and there's no, we don't have to actually look at sin and really work to deal with it in faith. You know, there's a lot of Christians out there like that. They don't want to look at the effects of sin, the realities of it. My mother endured a lot of this when she was dying of terminal cancer. There were people in her life that when, that when she would speak about preparing to die or about death, who would be like, oh, no, 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 Valerie, don't talk like that. That's not faith talking. We not have faith for your healing. 
And she's like, I have stage four terminal cancer. I would allow my, I would be will, I would be willing to be healed, but I'm also willing to die. If that's what God has for me. And it seems like he does. And so I need to do this work of preparing to, to meet him. And let me do that work. That's my faith. That was her testimony. It's been a powerful testimony. It affected a lot of people for good. And me included. That's like the testimony of Job in Job 13 where he says, Though he slay me, still I will hope in him. Paul's, Paul's got that kind of faith. He believes he will ultimately triumph. And there's no question or doubt about that in his mind. But in the meantime, he knows, as he said in Acts 14 to the people he was ministering to, it is through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Many difficulties, many trials, many tribulations. That's by God's design. It's a feature, not a bug. Be prepared. Be prepared. We see Paul's understanding of this in this passage uh, and this wonderful couple of phrases sandwiched between uh, these great ideas. Verses 10 and 11. He's just got done telling us about the, the power of Christ's resurrection and how he wants to know that, the power of the Holy Spirit in his life and how that aims him. In verse 11, it says, towards future glory, attaining the resurrection of the dead. That's his hope. That's the prize. And in between there is this wonderful, very helpful phrase. It says in verse 10, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and, I'm so thankful for this, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul understands the way of the cross. What Diedrich Bonhoeffer calls the cost of discipleship. He knows there's a cost. He knows it's heavy. It's difficult. There's, a, there's bloody seas to sail through. There's battles to fight. There's wounds and scars from those battles. But he's willing to know those. He wants to know those too. Because that's the real Christian life. That's life of the Spirit. Just as Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Paul not understands the cost of discipleship. He's, he's willing to pay it. He embraces the cost of it. He wants to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings and he wants to be conformed to his death. He doesn't accept it fatalistically like a cynic or like a stoic. He sees it as a privilege. Not as one who doesn't, isn't sensitive to pain. <laughs> he feels pain. He gets discouraged. He, he knows what it is to suffer. But he looks at all of that suffering, the suffering appointed by the Lord for a Christian, and he embraces it with faith, and he sees it as winning. That's, that's gain. That's to win. That's what it looks like to win as a Christian. We see this all over Paul's letters. Here's a wonderful example from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul has been wrestling with the Lord about something that he really wants rid of in his life that he suffers under. We don't know what it is. 
And here's what the Lord said to him in response. He says, he said to me, says Paul, the Lord said to me, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. That's what the Lord said. That was his answer. Power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, says Paul, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content, well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, that right there is a sign of the Holy Spirit. Because who in their right mind thinks that way? Your wrong mind. The mind of Christ looks at the, the way of the cross and it sees victory. It sees power. It sees strength. God doesn't think like we think. And when we come to know him by the power of his spirit, we receive of his mind. And we receive a new perspective on life that transforms everything. It doesn't take the pain away. But it gives us faith and hope and promise to carry us through that suffering that God has appointed us for, to endure. And to see it as the way God has made open the way of heaven for us. That as we suffer these things in faith for the sake of Jesus Christ and we endure them cheerfully and with, well, with good content, as Paul says, we accept them in faith, then this is the way through many tribulations that we ascend the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and get to heaven at last. That was Paul's attitude. It's his attitude. This is a test by which we examine our own faith and our own perspective on life and Christian life and experience. This is supposed to be our perspective too. That's why he's telling it to us. Just as James said, we're to consider it all joy, brothers, when we encounter various trials. It's so helpful in life to have proper expectations. The scriptures Jesus and the apostles have given us to expect difficulties in the life of serving the Lord. Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. Don't be surprised. It's not a strange thing. This is appointed by God. And John writes in his first epistle, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Don't be surprised by it. They hated Jesus first. If we don't expect trials, if we don't see them and feel them and know them and sympathize with those who are enduring them, if we, don't, if, we don't, if we don't want to have eyes to see trials and accept trials in faith, then we're just triumphalistic fools and our faith is just really shallow and it's good for nothing. Our faith has to be good enough to get through life. And that's the kind of faith that God has appointed and given us. And if we don't, though, if we only accept and expect difficulties... And we don't have an outlook that is ultimately hopeful 
that God is doing something good through them for us and that this is actually the way in which he has opened the gates of heaven to us. Well, then we're just cynical fools and our faith is no better than the faith of Stoics. Paul has both these things in good measure and proper proportion. He has, he has the hope of, of eternal, ultimate victory and he knows that the way there is gonna be bloody and hard. And he embraces that way in faith. The faith that God's given him. Where does that faith come from? This is the last thing I want us to see. Where does that come from? What is the hope that is in Paul that carries him through all of his trials and difficulties? The fourth thing is the life of the Spirit is a life of gospel-empowered faith-fueled, persevering confidence. Every day, Paul gets up and he strives hard after holy perfection. That's what he's telling us here. He keeps his eye on the prize and he runs straightway towards that prize. He throws off every encumbrance. He, he, he fights against his sin. He endures whatever hostilities and oppositions God has appointed for him to face each day in service of the Lord, he runs hard in the direction of glory. And that means seeking personal holiness in his life. What fuels those efforts? What is the power that's going on that, and that helps him to have this outlook and to run this race with endurance? Here's what it is. It's his strong sense that he already has these things that they belong to him, that Christ's likeness is his for the taking, that Jesus has secured his eternal glory, and it is not insecure in the least. He has obtained it by faith already. And so now each day, it's a matter simply of getting up getting dressed, and going to work to obtain what is his, what is promised him. This is not a man who is insecure and pursuing holiness as though he, his salvation depended upon it. As if, if I don't do enough today, God's not going to receive me. It's exactly the opposite. He gets up and he pursues holiness because Jesus has supplied it and guaranteed it, and promised it. It's a completely (laughs) otherworldly perspective. This is the perspective of faith. This is the gospel approach to obedience and to holiness. Look at, we see it in this passage. Look at verse 12. He says, Friends, not that I've already obtained the prize, or have already become perfect. I haven't. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. He laid hold of me for this. This is my future. I take it by faith each day. I want to make advance in this direction of what he has pledged and promised. I've been laid hold of by Christ for perfection, for holiness, for righteousness. 
And I want that. I want to experience it now more and more. I know I won't have it in its fullness until he has come. But man, I want it more and more now. This is the already and the not yet of Christian life. There's a lot that's already promised. Fullness, perfection is promised. And it's out there in the future. And we have it already and also not yet. But we can make progress towards it day by day through blood, sweat, and tears in the pursuit of holiness. He, Paul strives after holy perfection because he already has it in Christ. And this perfectly holy Christ has come in and is alive in Paul by the power of the Holy Spirit. The perfections that are in Christ are in Paul. And Paul understands that it is his privilege now to live them out. That's what he got done saying in chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who is at work in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're not alone in the pursuit of holiness. It's pledged with this eternal security of the Lord Jesus Christ and his priceless blood. And the spirit is in you working it out in real time as a pledge of the great things to come. You're not alone. Paul strives toward perfection as one who is already perfect. This is my favorite thing about these verses. Paul's play on words with the word perfect. It's powerful and it's hilarious. Look at this. In verse 12 he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Future glory, perfect in the future. But I press on to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but this thing I do, I forget what lies behind, I reach forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's what I do. That's how I live. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect. That's hilarious. And it's powerful. What Paul is saying is, this is what it looks like to understand yourself. This is the perfect attitude. Right here, this is the perfect attitude. This is the attitude of perfected ones. Those who have their perfection in Jesus Christ secured for them, obtained for them. Those who have the spirit in them as a pledge of that inheritance. This is their attitude. They don't have any other attitude than this. That with all their might, they run in the direction of God's promises and they conquer in the power of the Spirit and they face whatever obstacles they must and they suffer what they must with faith. Is that your attitude? It's the perfect attitude. Those who are perfect in Christ Jesus have no other attitude. This is like the last test that Paul gives us, I think, in these verses to examine ourselves by, is this your attitude? 
He says in the next verse, in, or the next half of verse 15, he says, if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Is he revealing your attitude to you? We need God to show us the way. It's not like other attitudes. There are other attitudes. Completely different viewpoints and ways of looking at the Christian life than what Paul has laid out here. Lots of them. But Paul's, and Paul is acknowledging that. But he's not acknowledging them as if they are equivalent to his attitude. His is the only right attitude. Do you have it? The attitude of going forward in faith. I pray that it is your attitude. This is what we need. This is the outlook we depend upon for ultimate glory and triumph. May God work it into us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this part of your word and for Paul's example and his deep understanding of the gospel and his deep experience of the Spirit. Thank you, Father, that he penned these words and that your Spirit inspired him and that we can learn from them. Oh, Father, would your Spirit work in us to trust in Jesus as our only hope the source of incredible hope. May your spirit entering into us testify to us that our hope is secure and that we can have confidence in it and that we can run with endurance the race set before us and that we can even see the trials of our life and the difficulties we encounter as appointed by you for our good and the good of our souls. Humble us in our pride, Father, pride that is relying on self and turns from you. Give us this attitude, which was in Christ and which is in Paul. May it be in us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.